Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here at Johan Vineyards with Dan Rinke. It's uh, July 1st, 2019. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today, Dan. We really appreciate this. Uh, thanks for having us. Um, so first question is why wine? Why wine? Um, early on in my uh, college days, I worked at restaurants and fell in love with wine while working in a restaurant and um, just couldn't get enough of it at the time. And um, I actually changed my career path to, to follow the distribution side of wine, um, mostly because I was so intrigued with it, and there's there's just so much involvement in wine that that it, it really um, filled an intellectual need along with um, also the taste senses too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you were at Fresno State at the time. Uh, or, no, or, that's or, the second time through college. Second time through college, okay, yeah, so, yeah. So. First time through college, I was uh, I played football for um, a Division three school mm-hmm. um, back in Wisconsin, and um, started working in um, bars as um, security or bouncing as checking IDs, mm-hmm. um, and then that led into bartending, and somehow I ended up working in fine dining uh, from bartending. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where I found wine. I actually found wine at um, while working at the Brett Favre Steakhouse. So thanks to Brett Favre, I found <laughs> wine. Um, yeah, so I, I, I just fell in love with wine at that point in time and uh, got into the ordering side um, at the steakhouse. I was the assistant uh, bar manager. And then um, at, in the meantime, I was, I was in college and I finished an associate's degree in business management at the time I thought I was going to go into restaurant management Mm -hmm. and um, after helping him open um, Brett Favre Steakhouse it was a I don't want to say it was a disaster but it was highly publicized and there's a lot of people showed up and uh, the opening process was pretty intense and I (laughs) I looked at the amount of hours and pay that a restaurant manager general manager would get and looked at the hours involved and I was like, I, I just can't see myself doing that for the rest of my life. <laughs> uh, so I ended up working in retail then. I worked at a wine shop uh, that had the largest wine selection uh, in the city at the time um, and was the assistant manager there. And basically I, I was a glorified um, uh, shelf stocker. I uh, just kept the, the shelf stocked and helped people select their wines. and. Uh, the advantage to it was I got to taste, you know, 15 to 20 wines a week as the sales reps came through. Uh, so it really opened up my eyes to world wines mm-hmm. and um, also domestic wines. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, I ended up working at a distribution company. Worked at two different distribution companies. The first one was uh, established pre um, pre prohibition. Um, and the owner, this was back in late 90s, early 2000s, and the owner at the time was 90 plus years old and decided to sell. Um, so then I ended up at a second distribution company uh, and worked there for a year. And it was those, those late 90s type sales companies where um, everything had a quota. You had to, to meet your quotas. You had to hit your dollar amounts. Uh, and if not, like it was still old school selling where the the sales manager would take you in his room and, and read me out if you haven't hit your numbers. And again, I looked back at it again, or I looked at it again and said, I can't see myself doing this in, for the rest of my life. <laughs> uh, so then I started looking at um, what universities offered winemaking and production side. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember back when I was working at the wine shop, I read an article in Decanter about Paul Draper, the winemaker at Ridge, mm-hmm. and I found out that he was from uh, the Midwest. And I was like, oh, well, this guy's from the Midwest, and he's a world-famous winemaker. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'm from the Midwest. I, could, I guess I could do this, too. Um, and so I started, as I'd get ride-alongs with wineries and winemakers, I'd ask them, 
well, what school should I go to? And the two big schools at the time was Fresno or Davis. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had one winemaker that said, hey, look, and this guy didn't even go to Fresno. He said, hey, look, if you want to be a scientist, go to Davis. If you want, if you want to be an actual winemaker and be driving a forklift or a tractor, go to Fresno. Um, and so I sent my application to Fresno that night and um, ended up getting accepted to Fresno State uh, to finish my bachelor's degree because I only had an associate's degree at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and I went to Fresno, or I signed up for Fresno and uh, finished working that summer for the distribution company. And um, at the end of the summer, I had a, a, a hosted a winemaker dinner for Michelle Chapoutier from the Rhone. And uh, I ended up sitting down at the bar with Michelle after the, the dinner and we were talking all things, especially biodynamics, because I was really interested in biodynamics at the time. Um, and then I had mentioned to him, I was like, hey, I'm going to be a winemaker. I'm going to winemaking school. And, and he just looked at me. He's like, why would you want to go to school to learn to make wine? You should go and learn how to grow grapes. So the very next Monday, I'm on the phone with Fresno State going, ah, can I change my major? Um, <laughs> And so I changed my major to viticulture, and I got a uh, degree, a bachelor of science in viticulture from Fresno State. And from there, I ended up uh, working at a winery, and I actually got hired from the uh, by the winery as an assistant winemaker. Mm -hmm. And so I had no no enology courses whatsoever, but got a, a, a job offer as an assistant winemaker. Um, so I worked. Worked there as an assistant winemaker for a year. Um, one of my other jobs was to manage the vineyard management company. Mm -hmm. So basically mm -hmm. be the winery liaison to the vineyard management company and make, making sure that on the vineyard side, they're keeping up to the quality standards that the winery had, um, which was great because then that took allowed me to take my book knowledge that I got in the past three years at Fresno mm -hmm. and turn it into practical knowledge and actually mm -hmm. seeing what they're doing and going over spray schedules and um, looking at at all all the things that we're doing and then at the same time I was also in charge of running their biodynamic program um, so I was able to I was doing all the biodynamic sprays making all the making the preparations making the compost um, and really really as soon as I got into the industry on the production side I was really hit the ground floor running, mm -hmm. um, which was, it was just a great experience. Um, and then, um, I decided to move on from there and I wanted to focus a little bit more on viticulture. So I took a job up in the Santa Cruz mountains, um, working for another winery that had multiple sites. Um, they had, uh, just over 40, 45 acres over three different properties all over the Santa Cruz mountains. So it was a lot of driving tractors around and bouncing things from place to place and moving crews around, um, but also running their biodynamic program, which was, was important to me. Um, and then also diving, diving in a little deeper to it. Um, they definitely encouraged uh, experimentation and um, pushing the limits a little more. Um, so I got great experience in the vineyard again and then harvest came around and they needed um, harvest help so I was doing vineyard operations during the day and helping picking or driving trucks up from Sonoma if we were getting it from somewhere else and then um, hopping into the winery and doing punch downs all, all day and all night then getting about two or three hours of sleep, hopping in the truck doing the same thing again. Um, it was just a, it was a really great experience. Um, and after doing that for a little bit, I um, started getting curious on um, what else is out there. And mm -hmm. I ended up finding Johan Vineyards. I uh, had a job listing in winejobs.com and um, um, submitted my, my resume. And um, lo and behold, I got an interview and came up here and it was so green and I was, <laughs> thought it was amazing. Um, <laughs> And Oregon just felt more like home. Oregon is a, a much different, it's much different than California. It's, um, it, it reminds me a lot more of the Midwest. Um, and I kept on telling my family, I was like, oh, it's great. Oregon's like the Midwest of the West Coast. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I, so I headed back, I took the job here and I, I've been working at Yohan ever since. Cool.
just want to back up a couple of steps there to when you're working working wine shop and kind of learning, getting a wine education and tasting and selling. How did you worry about work on like developing the, the skills necessary to, to tell someone else what kind of wine to drink? Like to give that kind of advice. How do you? How did you feel comfortable doing that? Um, it was more about questions and finding out what they preferred mm -hmm. and. Um, and then just equating that to the the notes I had, mental notes I had taken on some of the wines that I've tasted, and um, uh, it's it's more about just finding out what they enjoy. Mm -hmm. How did you? When did you feel comfortable? Um, sort of with your knowledge of worldly wines, like how, how long did it take you to kind of develop your your palate? I guess. Um, I you know it's probably a good good few years and I don't think I'm I'm still not there and I probably have forgotten more information than I knew when I worked in the wine <laughs> shop um, and the world has really changed in wine mm -hmm. you know um, what people desire in areas that are are, are popular now were sub-regions back then mm -hmm. you know and and you know I think um, some of the the younger guys on the team here at Johan, they have a, a broader world, not wine knowledge than I do, because I've just I've simply forgotten about the areas that I knew, and and those areas are too expensive, so people have moved on to, <laughs> to these minor regions, and they're becoming more important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned uh, biodynamic interest almost from the start. What was it about biodynamic farming that appealed to you? Um, well, uh, I think it was back when I was working at the wine shop. Uh, I had a friend that was a cashier and she was, uh, she did that as a part-time job while she was studying to be a Waldorf school teacher. Mm -hmm. And so she, so she was into to Steiner teachings um, and noticed a few of the wines had um, biodynamic written on the label and she had known about biodynamics so she'd always like grab the bottles and she's like oh you should try this wine and this is biodynamic this is really cool and she'd tell me about it and uh, I got interested and started reading about it mm -hmm. and then uh, when I worked for uh, the second distribution company we sold um, uh, Nicolas Cholet wines um, and Nicolas Cholet is just is um, um, a big proponent of biodynamics and probably one of the more popular teachers who's written several books on biodynamics uh, and then so and, and I had opportunity to taste his wines being that I sold them and um, thought they were completely intriguing uh, then also I mentioned Michel Chapoutier um, having his wines being all biodynamic um, and then we also sold uh, Jos Meyer wines from the Alsace, which are also biodynamic. Um, and just and seeing the quality and the 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 energy that all those wines have, it was really intriguing. Mm -hmm. And then and then of course it's another way of just stimulating your imagination. Uh, you know where you can just you could read more and you can you can you, it, it, there's more of a a latitude to imagine mm -hmm. and use your um, creative thinking skills a little deeper than than just reading scientific papers that that say it, this is what we this is the the science that we have found this is the design the experimental design we laid out this is how we did it these are the results mm -hmm. you know um, which I don't think has, you know, you use a lot of your imagination in there. It's almost like reading, um, it's almost like reading non, uh, reading fiction books that were actually nonfiction. You know, you, you're able to sit back and just have, uh, um, uh, to think about things a little deeper. Mm -hmm. You mentioned uh, when you were in the Santa Cruz Mountains and kind of pushing the limits, you said, I think, as we said, uh, what did you mean by pushing limits of biodynamism? Um, I was just able to, to experiment a little bit more, work with teas mm -hmm. um, and different compost tea sprays, different sp teas. Um, the the um, financial backing of this winery was, um, was was basically a spare no expense. If you can improve quality, then do it. Um, so I was able to get the equipment I needed when I needed it. I could I could just go out and buy 
30 tons of compost with no problem and get a front end loader to move it around and do proper composting and it was just it was um the funding was there to, to support any ideas that you had how would you describe your your sort of farming philosophy or your vineyard philosophy um boy um i would say that i, I i'm uh <laughs> the, the lexicon of farming is, is pretty interesting at this point in time. Um, there's a lot of words thrown out there that uh, I'm not sure if those are exactly great words to be using to describe the farming. Um, but I would say my, my farming has been informed by um, people such as Rudolf Steiner, Rudolf Steiner, uh, Masanovo, Fukuoka, um, Michael Phillips, uh, who is a uh, orchardist on the East Coast. Um, I think I think um, other areas of farming can really inform how viticulture could be worked. Um, also, um, the teachings of Bill Mollison and the whole permaculture design. Uh, Mark Shepard from Permaculture. Um, you know, these these are these are people that have have written a lot of books that again are science uh, uh, sciencey but not necessarily a hundred percent science so it allows you to use your information or your imagination a little bit more mm -hmm. um, I think I think we need to start looking at um, our farming a little more creative creatively um, and start looking more as a, a an ecological system uh, and looking towards maybe um, you know, I, I keep thinking about my son and him taking over my business. And uh, if he ever came to me and said, "I want to go to school for viticulture or, or farming," I'd say, N "Don't even bother. Go go to school for for ecology. Learn ecology because that's truly what we need to learn to have um, an ecologically based system that's um, that's truly sustainable. If you want to use those words, or regenerative." Mm -hmm. um, um, I, I think that that our farming methods are too simplistic, and we don't we don't have a broad vision of exactly what's going on due to um, the constraints of modern science and having to um, eliminate all um, outside um, um, variables. Mm -hmm. you know, there's so many variables in an ecologic system that, that it's, it's really hard to study it in the constraints of modern science. Interesting. Where do you find your view fits in with the Oregon wine industry in general? Like, do you find yourself kind of as an outlier? Do you find other people who kind of think the way you do? Um, it, it, really surprisingly, I've been really dwelling on this recently. There's a group of people that are coming forth with the type of farming that I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. um, and it seems like we've all culminated to about the same point. Like we've come to like these same methods and methodologies and um, practices um, all about the same time mm -hmm. without communication with each other. So I find like um, uh, just talking to Mimi Castile, me and her have a, a real common um, agreement agreements on how um, farming should be done uh, and we had never had a conversation until just last year um, me, uh, I would also include in that group Nate Nate Reddy up in the Hood River um, although me and Nate talk all the time but um, we don't we haven't been talking about a lot of these practices it's just like he'd say something I'd be like wait I was just reading about that or I was just thinking about putting this in my system mm -hmm. um, and then there's uh, guys like Junichi um, who's into basically the same stuff mm -hmm. um, yeah I, I really can't think of um, other I mean I'm sure there's there's more people but yeah it's it's real interesting how we all kind of at the same time have come up with the same philosophies or thought processes mm -hmm. so then given like the ideal scenario what would your like ideal vineyard farm setting look like um ideally it would be uh a no-till organic um system uh that has multiple species um within the vineyard 
um, both with cover crops but also interplanted in between the vines um, with diverse um, real extreme diverse um, hedgerows on, on the outsides of the vineyard on the <laughs> peripheries of the vineyards um, that would include multiple species of plants that that um, work with this um, this is it's getting uh, it's a pretty complex um, <laughs> <laughs> with also having um, um, a more um, uh, areas of the 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 system would have um, uh, things that would would replicate or um, would replicate uh, the environmental areas where grapevines originated. Um, I think um, within the vine rows, you could, we could be interplanting um, other species of plants that have um, dual associations with mycorrhizae. Mm -hmm. So there's two types of mycorrhizae, endo and ectomycorrhizae, and there's plants like elderberry or some of the native willows or all the willows mm -hmm. that you could be putting in some, some native shrubby willows <laughs> that have dual associations with, my, with both types of mycorrhizae. Um, doing a no-till system so you're not breaking up the hyphal network that's created underneath our feet. Um, also chipping wood because you can't just leave logs out in vineyards. I mean, if you could figure out a way to do it, put them under the vine or whatever. But we need to have decomposing wood because I think that having, um, as wood breaks down, the fungus breaks down the, the wood, it, the fungus secrete a multitude of chemical um, um, excretions um, and some of those could help detoxify our systems mm -hmm. um, uh, fungus are, are um, uh, I believe they're the health system of ecosystems um, I believe that that um, wood chip piles um, for an example as a wood chip piles broken down they found that that um, chemicals like p-chimeric acid are secreted into the the soil mm -hmm. um, by the fungus as they're breaking down the lignin and uh, p-chimeric acid is one of the main chemicals in your liver that that detoxifies your body um, not to say that the wood chip pile is a liver but it may potentially work like that um, if you use your imagination a little bit and think of, of of, of these processes as instead of being an annoyance or a hindrance to farming but um, an added bonus to farming or a way to you know maybe potentially we might be able to find a uh, um, a cure or not necessarily a cure but a way to keep um, woody diseases out of our our vineyards or maybe this is a way to get um, control of our viral situations in grapevines. Maybe the viruses in grapevines can be cured by just having wood chip piles decomposing or leaving a dead vine that's 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 dead. Just leave it sitting in the vineyard and let it break down in a natural way. You know, if it's up in its wires, it's not it's not going to get in your way of farming. Uh, I think one of our problems is that we feel that we have to have um, we have to have wall-to-wall -wall grapevines from fence post to fence post and fill the entire property with with just grapes. Um, I think we need to, to set aside um, more wild areas. Um, I know one of the things that I love about biodynamics or the biodynamic certification is that they require that you have at least 10% of native areas set aside. Um, instead of having you know, going out and buying a 19-acre property and then planting 15 acres of grapes in it, you know, maybe you have to have a little bit less grapes and have four acres of, of wild wooded area mm -hmm. or wild meadow or pasture. Or, um, I also think that it would be, it's important to run animals through your property. I think that mimics a natural environment more. Um, running animals through your property also helps with micronutrient um, cycling. 
um, and and macronutrients, but but I think it's more beneficial for the micronutrients, um, and it's also adding more organic matter to our soil. Um, you know, when you start getting into a no-till situation and you you don't have um, you're not breaking up your fungus and creating and giving a bunch of oxygen into the soil, you're not burning up all your organic matter. Organic matter um, is so important to have. Um, To have uh, better water holding capacity, better cation exchange capacity, um, anion exchange capacity, which nobody in farming really talks about. Um, it, it, there's so many uh, benefits to having more organic matter in our soils, and why we're not focusing on on growing organic matter rather than growing grapevines, and the grapevines kind of just fall in place is beyond me. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it, it just, it, it's, it, it, we gotta start thinking of an entire ecosystem rather than, um, rather than a vineyard mm -hmm. or the individual vine. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, we're trying to grow a community of plants that support themselves. It's uh, not, not just an individualistic, I need the grapes for my wine. I need, I need the whole community to grow my wine, to raise my wine. Interesting. Okay, that's really interesting. A lot of it I don't understand, but a lot of it really interesting. <laughs> right. It's, it, it's, it is really complex, mm -hmm. and um, I think it is hard to, to look at all the different influences that come from one, you know, as one benefit, all the influences on the outside that create that, that benefit. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, I mean, it's difficult. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's a hard thing to study, for sure. Sure. So let's go back for a second before I get back to that. Um, you got to Johan and, and of course, uh, been here for a while. So tell me a little bit about sort of the, some of the changes you implemented here, some of the experiments you're working on, some of the, the growth that's happened here. Yeah. Um, I'd say well, the, the first day I, I, I came, May 1st, 2007, um, they, the vineyard crew was, was um, told to spray Roundup. And so that was the last day that we sprayed Roundup here. Um, uh, you know, there's been a lot of discussion recently in the Willamette Valley about Roundup use and glyphosate usage. Um, and I'm not really going to get into that, but I think it's bad for the vines. I think it's bad for humans. I think it's bad for our environment. I think it washes into our water systems. I think they're finding glyphosate in people. In people, like there's so much glyphosate usage and um, I, I don't think it's healthy for our society and I think it's one giant experiment that's going to prove to be a bad experiment and uh, unfortunately they're experimenting on us and on our environment. Uh, luckily we have our friends uh, the fungus who will help clean that up um, but I think we need to start, start changing that. Um, and so uh, <laughs> things have changed is stop using uh, Roundup um, and then move to a biodynamic farming situation. The first year we went into more of a, an organic situation, organic, um, even sustainable because we were using, you know, they used Roundup the first day and um, I was just getting a foothold of Oregon. Um, Oregon is much different to farming than California. Uh, it's so much, uh, there's so much more humidity throughout the season. Like even today you can feel, mm -hmm. just feel the humidity. Um, and we're in July 1st, you know. Um, and this is just perfect powdery mildew weather. Uh, <laughs> where in California it wasn't quite as uh, high pressure and powdery mildew. Um, uh, but then just moving the system and, and, and switching everything. Like there, we're into heavy irrigation back uh, previous to me getting here. The vines were pretty young. Uh, they were five years old. So they're getting to the point where they needed to get weaned off of the water, uh, but they were getting watered to the extreme. Um, so we moved, we, I slowly moved it into a dry farming situation, but that happened, you know, it wasn't into 2012 before I com cut the water off completely. Um, so, it, you know, just move into organic farming, dry, 
dry farm situation. Um, I, back then I wasn't sold on um, uh, no-till situations. Mm -hmm. So we were doing um, every other row cultivation. Because uh, back then I thought the normal conventional thought was you grow this giant, huge cover crop and then you mow it down and till it in right away and you feed your microbes because you're putting all that green matter in there. The thing that we don't think about is all the the root mass that's already under the ground. Mm -hmm. So so I've moved to a point where now I just mow it down and let it decompose on top and then you got all the root mass underneath that's mm -hmm. feeding the microbes. So you're getting uh, um, a feeding both ways and then you're also not burning up the organic matter by adding oxygen and um, it's uh, um, I've just slowly it took me you know multiple years to, mm -hmm. to get to that point to me probably until 2013 2014 until we started moving into a no-till situation um, and and that you know uh, the other things that we've now evolved into is putting wood chips in the vineyard I have uh, Ramiel wood chip piles Ramiel uh, wood chips were talked about by Laval University in Quebec, Canada in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, and they, they wrote research papers back then uh, for using them in orchards. Um, and it's, you know, I've never heard of, of vineyards using them until just recently, mm -hmm. um, which I think is very interesting that, that we tend to get into viticultural research and we don't look outside of viticultural research. Uh, I think there's a lot of research that's been done done out there in other cropping situations that we can take lessons from. Um, then um, we've also worked on putting some, I've got an experimental block where I, I put some uh, alderberries in, uh, to, which is a dual mycorrhizal association. Um, see how that turns out. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I've also gone into a very diverse uh, cover cropping system. Uh, back in the day, my cover crops used to consist of three, maybe four different species. Now I'm just trying to get as much as possible. So whatever I can find from the seed companies will we'll get put in there. Um, I've also moved to per, more heavier perennial cover cropping system. Mm -hmm. So perennial crops mostly is what I'm looking at. Um, and, you know, in school, I learned that you should do grasses and legumes and do a grass legume blend. And now I'm trying to incorporate more um, broadleafs also into it and um, continual flowering perennials. Mm -hmm. uh, so you have a very understanding owner here, is what you're saying, in terms of allowing you to kind of try things. Uh, sure. I mean, he, he, not that he would be able to tell me that what I'm doing is wrong. So, it, I mean, it kind of works out that way. <laughs> I like it. And you've also expanded the varietals you're growing here. So tell me about how that's coming out. Uh, absolutely. So back in 2010, um, we were looking for a way to diversify our crop a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, so that was, you know, the height of the crash. Uh, it was pretty difficult to sell Pinot Noir, uh, Pinot Gris. Um, and so we were looking at things to put into the vineyard to... Um, get a higher yield because also back then we really struggled with yields um, you know in these cold, colder years it seemed like we were on a uh, biannual cropping situation 07 was a big crop 08 was a tiny crop 09 was a big crop uh, 010 was a little crop 11 big 12 small mm -hmm. um, and since then it's changed but back then uh, that's the way it looked to me and and we were having minuscule crops and it was really hard you know I worked real hard to bring my farming costs down but um, we couldn't with the yields we were getting we, we just we couldn't break even break even so I was looking for crops uh, looking for grapes that would have a higher yield um, and keep the farming costs the same or less mm -hmm. Um, and we came up with um, Gruner Veltliner. We studied, basically studied climatic regions, so we were looking for the similar climate. And then also soils too. Um, and we came up with Gruner Veltliner. Uh, the Vakau seemed to really match our climate pretty well. And then the Vakau is mostly uh, granite, uh, decomposed granite, granite and schist. Um, and we have a lot of decomposed granite here because of the way the soils were developed. 
um, when the Missoula floods came through, Johan here, you can see the gap right in here. Mm -hmm. That got dammed up by um, glacial chunks and then the waters would flow over the top of this, stripped off all our old topsoil and then would decompose, uh, put the, the um, it would drop soils from Washington, Eastern Washington, Idaho, Montana, mm -hmm. drop it all over here. Um, this region, because of the, the way the water moved through here, this is a region that has some of the highest um, erratic boulders, mm -hmm. granite boulders. And you can find it in the vineyard. As soon as we, we got away from uh, using Roundup and started doing under the vine cultivation uh, to keep the weeds down, we started popping up more and more granite chunks. And you, we'd get nice size granite boulders coming up. And it seems like they always float to the top of the soil and keep resurfacing. <laughs> um, so you, we saw more and more decomposed granite. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. And just kind of banked that and, and kept that in the back of my brain. and. And then when we started researching different varieties, um, Gruner Fautliner seemed like a great um, thing to go. And since we were doing a white, Austrian white, we looked at Blaufrankisch, which is which is another um, great Austrian red variety. Um, although it's it's typically grown in a, a slightly warmer region than what we are in, um, but. Um, even back in 2010 and 11 when we grafted it over, which were two of the coldest years that I saw in my 13 years here so far, mm -hmm. um, we were still wondering about climate change and global warming at that point. And so we're like, well, we put it in now and, and maybe it'll get, it'll get better and we'll get it ripe and, or we'll be pushing the edge of ripeness. Um, I, which I, I have always thought that um, pushing pushing viticulture to the edges makes the greatest uh, wines possible. So when you're, when you're, when you're growing on a, uh, an ecological edge, um, so pushing your ripeness to the very end before the rains come, those make the best wines, mm -hmm. typically is what I see. Mm -hmm. um, and just looking all over the world, you know, you look at why these grape varieties um, got an association with specific wine regions mm -hmm. because that those are the grapes that they could grow right into the very end of their season mm -hmm. um and so i thought that that was that was the way to go um and i think i've been proven right because i'm really impressed with both the gruner and the blaufrankish but the blaufrankish especially mm -hmm. um even in the coldest coldest year of 2011 which was the first year we we made wine from it uh, it was wild and gamey and just super exotic and and in those these warmest of years it, it comes in with the best chemistry of all the red wine red wine grapes that we have um, or textbook chemistries you know you, you got these higher acids lower pHs that are is just make stellar wines um, and so those were those were like the, the first two that we did and then in 2011, we grafted some more for a friend um, up in Portland, um, and he wanted um, Loire varietals. Um, so we planted uh, uh, Milan de Bergogne, um, Gamay, and Cab Franc. Mm -hmm. And Cab Franc is definitely our latest ripening grape. It has been every single season, um, but it's you know it's it's not too much later than Pinot. So, Two, two weeks to maybe three weeks post um, Pinot Noir. And and in the last couple of years, we've actually been harvesting Pinot Noir after the Cap Franc. So it's it's kind of interesting to see that happen. What do you, what would you hope that your, the Johan grapes, what would, that, what would that express to someone tasting wine made from these grapes? What is it you're kind of hoping they get out of the bottle? Um, you know, I'm I'm more of a a classicist, a classic wine guy. I I, I like wines that can age, um, that can be delicious upon release, but but age gracefully. Um, I love uh, aged wines, wines that are like 15, 20, 25, 30 years old. Uh, the the flavor complexities that can come from wines that that can last that long are mind-blowing and, and 
exhilarating they're just they're amazing they just that that that's thing that i love the most about wines or love uh, from qualities of wines so i want things that can age which means that you have to have good acidity you have to have good fruit good tannins good acidity and those three things in balance and so um so for red wines that's what i'm looking for um grapes that can do that um so i think one of one of our big promises promising grapes right now is um Mondus noir um i think Mondus is going to deliver that also um we've we just harvested it for the first time last year um but the, the acid tannin fruit profile is 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 pretty cool but it's, i think it's going to be a great wine here so talk about your other project. You have uh, the art, art plus science. So tell me a little bit about that and about your your own yeah. vineyard. Yeah, art and science was um, started here uh, here at Johan. Uh, it was mine and my wife's label to start, um, but it was a side project that Dog Johan uh, allowed us to uh, allowed me to make a ton of fruit on my own label and and didn't charge me for using the space or the equipment. Um, and so I was able to make Syrah the first year. Um, so I started with Syrah from Southern Oregon, from the Applegate Valley. Um, and, and that was in 2011. And since then it's kind of evolved into um, wine and uh, cider. So I, I, um, I grow cider variety apples at home and we do, um, my wife, forages for a lot of apples uh, and just goes around and like hits up like all the old homesteads that have these trees that are you know uh, 50 60 70 year old trees um, and we just harvest fruit and make make cider barrel fermented ciders and and wine so what do you want what is the difference what is it you want art and science to kind of express um I would say I'd want I wanted to be a brand that that pushes the limits of what people expect from beverages, modern beverages. Um, you know, our stuff is is, is um, sometimes a, a co-ferment of Gruner Veltliner and apples, and then aged in an acacia barrel, which is you know a fairly unique thing that I don't think many people have tasted before. And so I just want, I want to offer more tasting experiences um, and kind of open, open people's minds to the possibilities of, of fermented beverages. Mm -hmm. What made you decide to try mixing apples and grapes into, into one beverage? Uh, well, the vast majority of apples that we were um, foraging, that we were harvesting at the time, were not cider varieties. And so that means that they're, they tend to be higher in sugar, uh, lower in acid, and zero tannins. And so I wanted, <laughs> I wanted to have a more traditional cider, mm -hmm. uh, which means I, I needed to figure out how to get tannins into the cider. And um, I don't believe in additives in making any beverages. So, I, so at most I'll put sulfur in, in a wine or cider, and that's not even all the time. Um, and so I wanted to get tannins in there in a natural way. And um, I had an experiment back in 2000, I think it was 11 or 12, at the very beginning of Gruner and Blaufrankisch. And I made a rosé that was a Gruner Blaufrankisch co-ferment. And I left the Gruner skins in there um, for the co-ferment. And it was so tannic. It was ridiculously tannic. So I just, I kind of went back to that and remembered how tannic Gruner could be and so I wanted to add those tannins but then also just flavor profiles they really seem to kind of in my mind work together and and it has like it's it, it works out uh, it's pretty impressive how they co-ferment together <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome uh, so in addition to being a forager your wife was also an artist so tell us about the, about the labels for farm science uh, yeah so my so my wife's art media is um, cut paper assemblage mm -hmm. so what she does is she'll she'll cut an image out and layer that on multiple layers of cut paper and then put it on a plywood backer and, um, and then nail that down mm -hmm. 
Uh, so it's got a real textural look to it. it it's, you know, it is, you know, uh, two-dimensional, but it seems three-dimensional mm -hmm. when you when you look at it. Um, and she, she her, um, her subject matter is mostly science-based. It's, mm -hmm. it's either birds, uh, botanicals, or anatomy. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we decided to stick with um, uh, that as a theme for our label. So the, the cider labels will have birds on them. Uh, and the wine will have anatomy on them, and then the co-ferments will have both. Um, and that fits more with the art, the name art and science. Mm -hmm. um, I looked at her art and I was like, oh, this is like art. Like her art to me is just screamed art and science. Um, we were talking about what we went to college for, and she went to college for art, and I went to college for science. So it just <laughs> it, it just it was kind of spun out of out of um, both of our backgrounds. Mm -hmm. So what are your future plans with art and science? Um, well, we uh, we just planted another 11 acres, so we're up to 15 acres of um, of fruit, um, including grapes, apples, pears, quince, mm -hmm. um, and we're looking at opening a tasting room, um, and um, last two years ago we built a processing facility a, a seller at mm -hmm. home um, so yeah it's just just working on the farm and, and making ciders at home and hopefully selling more of it um, from the tasting room sure. tell me about the 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 Rochambeau the philosophy the philosophy behind your your art and science the philosophy <laughs> yeah what's, 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 what's your philosophy behind it what's uh Behind the, behind the farm, I guess. Like, what's the... Yeah, so so with the farm, I, I, I want to have uh, a farm of, uh, of the past, something that has um, multiple, uh, a diversity of crops. Um, you know, I, want, I, I, I think back of my, um, my uncle's farm where my, my mom grew up, and they had cows and pigs and chickens and then they had um alfalfa fields and corn fields and um you know and then rotated that with soybeans and it was a, a multi-faceted farm and it's not solely based on one specific mm -hmm. product um and that that's what i'd like to look at doing is is having more integration of animals at home. We have pastures, we have a hay field, we have um, 15 acres of, of fruits, um, and making all those things available for uh, as products that we sell. Um, just having a, a diversity of, of um, a diversity of products available. You mentioned that it kind of started as a sort of side passion project, started here and has now expanded. I'm curious about sort of how the Oregon wine industry sort of supports those kind of side passion projects and, 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 and helps them helps them to grow. Um, yeah, I, I, I see, um, but I, I, I see this not necessarily just in Oregon, because I also see it in California with my friends too, but a, a lot of wineries will encourage their their winemakers or their winery staff to start a small label. Um, some of them because they want to make sure that the people don't cut and run, <laughs> leave, leave them high and dry, um, so that they have their barrels in the cellar. They know they can't leave. <laughs> um, and some some wineries do it because we're small businesses, and it may not be as easy to um, give someone a raise every year. So instead, what they would do is, is give them a little space in the cellar and say, I know it's not you know, a monetary raise, but you can turn this mm -hmm. into money and I'm not gonna charge you. And you know, it's, it's, a, it's a great way to, um, to utilize the space that you have, you know, it, especially being small businesses, you're utilizing every asset and um, making it available as a benefit to your employees. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a great way to do that. Um, I think it's also, I think a lot of people are looking at how they can pay it forward. Like they've also been helped out a lot. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, like uh, I have a, a friend that we've been our longest selling customer, um, Brian at Big Table Farm, came. Um, uh, he he gives me you know he, at the beginning was giving me barrels he's just like here here's barrels I'll give them to you and he's like I have to pay it forward because I, I had the same thing done to me when I started you know someone was giving me barrels and I see you starting out and I know the position you're in and I know know where you're at and it, this is how I can help you and I don't need them like you know it's a it's a great way to do it um and i really I, I you know i believe in that you know karma and 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 helping people out like you know you, you see where they're at and you know you've been there before and how can you make it easier for them and, um yeah it's, it's it's i think that that's what community is about those is is helping each other out so you mentioned that you're coming into your thirteenth year in the industry, so you've seen a lot of the very, we've seen a lot of changes recently. I'm curious if that kind of philosophy is still kind of the guiding principle in Oregon wine, or if you're or if you're starting to see changes. Uh, in, in terms of like aspect. kind of community paying it forward, is it, does it feel like that's still the same kind of industry right now? Uh, absolutely, I think it's actually growing. I I, um, I see I see more. Um, interactions now with these smaller labels than I did at the beginning and I don't know if that's just because I'm isolated up here in Johan and didn't talk to many people early on um, and it also helps having having young people like Morgan around who um, who is much more social in, in the winemaking community mm -hmm. So we talked a lot about your kind of various philosophies. Uh, how would you describe winemaking philosophy? We kind of talked about like what you want the wine to express, but how would you describe what you want to do to your wines? Um, so I think of my wines a lot, like I think of, of the vineyard. Um, I think, um, I also think that if I'm gonna go through all the headaches of being an organic farmer in the vineyard, I'm gonna continue that same philosophy at the cellar door. I'm, I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna change my mindset when when it comes to bringing those grapes into the cellar, um, which basically means I'm gonna try to find ways to um, add as many as little uh, chemical inputs as I can. Um, I'm definitely. Uh, um, prescribed to the thoughts of IPM in the cellar. So in, a, in an integrated pest management, uh, mm -hmm. they have control tactics, and those are uh, mechanical control, cultural control, um, uh, I, those are the two I can think of right now, and then chemical control is the last one. Mm -hmm. there's, there's five strategies. And I think you should tick through that list in order and chemical control being the last one. So so in in the winery, if I've got issues, I, I wanna think through the processes first and make sure that, that I'm doing everything I can to minimize any inputs. And uh, since I'm a farmer first, um, I wanna reflect what the farming does and I don't wanna get in the way of the terroir. Um, I think by adding any chemical additives to wines, you're bastardizing the terroir. Um, and I, I just, I want to steer clear from that. And um, I want the, the fruit to speak for itself. Mm -hmm. um, so I'd rather look, look at um, making sure that my sanitation's extra, uh, uh, more involved, you know, uh, I'm cleaning everything really well. I'm um, topping my wines up. I, I've always topped wines um, weekly, which is a bit excessive in the wine industry. Usually it's, you know, every two weeks to every three weeks to maybe once a month or maybe longer, depending on who you are. Um, but I, I think if you're physically excluding oxygen, you can use less sulfur. Um, or you have less microbial issues because most of the microbial spoilage um, comes from aerobic microbes. Um, so if you're creating an anaerobic condition, you never have those spoilage microorganisms developing. 
Um, and so it's that it's that kind of mind pro that mind thought. Like, like you go through and you, you look at the process and you just like, well, how can I change this in a physical way or in a in a cultural way, rather than changing it in a chemical way. Interesting. You mentioned the terroir here and sort of trying not to change it. So how would you describe the terroir here, Johan? Um, I think that there's a. Um, there's definitely an elegance to Johan, um, a prettiness to it, a floral aspect, uh, and this goes for all varieties. It pretty much shows across varieties too, uh, a lot of the similarities. And there's also a salinity that I see, um, and that that goes, you know, in Chardonnay it may come off as sea brine, um, where in Blaufrankisch it comes off of a more sanguine quality. But it's there's a salinity or a, um, uh, a more um, savory aspect to it. Interesting. Kind of, you kind of talked earlier about your your first day on the job and kind of being eye opening to the seeing Roundup. Uh, so I'm curious, uh, all the changes you made, all the things you've done here, is there something you you look back as a, your proudest accomplishment here at Johan so far? Something you're really excited or pr proud of? Um, yeah, hiring Morgan Hall, or Morgan Beck, sorry. <laughs> um, Morgan's going to be the future of Johan, and I think she's um, an amazing person and she's completely dedicated. I think that's one of the smartest things I ever did was hire her as an assistant. Awesome. Love it. Um, what do you see as you look ahead here, uh, 10 years, 15 years down the road here at Johan? What do you see in the future? Um, hopefully I see a, a more diversified farm, uh, including um, uh, animal um, rotations throughout through the vineyards, um, and um, maybe a larger production facility so we can make a little bit more of the fruit ourselves instead of selling it all. Um, Having um, some more more diversity in the vineyard, um, I would love to see the vineyard's whole being closer to 50% Pinot Noir and 50% others. Uh, I think that's a lot more uh, sustainable as far as um, an economic buffer and the downturns of of the cycle, where where we may be sitting in a saturated Pinot market, and then we just don't won't suffer as bad. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, other than that, maybe a, a, a um, <laughs> that's a lot. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> what about the Oregon wine industry in the future? What, what do you see as you look ahead there? Um, as the Oregon wine industry, I, I see it diversifying more, um, being more dynamic than what it is currently, um, and also having a bigger spotlight shown on it because of that. Um, and having more of an importance to the entire world wine community. When you say you see it being more diverse and dynamic, why do you think that is? Why do you think that's going to change? Um, because I th because of the people coming in, uh, I think the young younger generations are um, pushing the limits a little bit more and um, maybe more intuitive or more. Um, or questioning at least, mm -hmm. and thinking of ways to um, push boundaries. Mm -hmm. I think I think if we're not pushing boundaries, we're not growing. And you know, it's it, it's a very young industry. I mean, it's only what 50 years now. Like, I mean, that's that's babies compared to the rest of the world. Um, and we've got a lot to learn, and we just got to keep keep our minds open and and experiment and mm -hmm. try new things and find out what works best mm -hmm. you know just because the the first couple people um, planted certain varieties it doesn't mean we have to stick to them you know we could we can try some more things and see what else happens what about anything uh, sort of uh, any projects or experience you're working on right now that you're excited about for the future um, 
I'm just I'm excited to see what happens with uh, the experimental block I have with having uh, interplantings of, of different um, species um, and how the the vines react to having um, um, some more decomposing matter and decomposing lignin in its in its um, environment. Um, pretty excited to see how that stuff turns out. Uh, what advice did you have for someone who was looking to join the Oregon wine industry today? Um, run away. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have nothing. I'm old and cynical. <laughs> <laughs> so, would you recommend they not do it then? Um, I mean, if it's your passion, then work hard and 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 do your best. <laughs> like it. Uh, you guys have anything? All the questions that I have prepared yeah. for you. Is there anything I should have asked that I didn't? Anything we didn't cover that we needed to? Uh, I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time, for your yeah. answers. Really appreciate this and your. A different philosophy than we usually hear, so it's always exciting to kind of get this and uh, appreciate your time. Yeah, and thank you, you for go. joining yeah, us yeah. for this Thanks edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.